0: Cinderella, 1950 After surviving the 1940s with lower-cost productions, the studio returns to narrative features with a new princess love story based on a classic fairy tale in Cinderella. It is here the years of development pay off in a bright and stylized spectacle, not only surpassing the past decade of animation from Disney, but establishing the classic Disney style as this project will refer to it. The story of the titular character revolves around unfortunate circumstances, an evil stepmother that outlives her father that holds her hostage in her own home only to provide labor. Like Snow White before her, she is ingratiated to the audience from scene one. She does not deserve her terrible situation, and yet she has not lost her kindness. Alongside the many developments in style and storytelling that were developed in the package film era, several names also become attached to projects repeatedly. Not just Mary Blair as a concept artist, but also directors Clyde Geronimi, Wilfred Jackson, and Hamilton Lusk. Geronimo is credited for direction on Bambi and several other films of the 40s, some alongside Jackson and Lusk, and together the three direct every feature in the 1950s until Sleeping Beauty in 1959. It speaks to the studio's strength that the team works with a unified style, but much of their collaboration and consistency can be attributed to the work in the package film era together. Cinderella returns to the storybook opening and the camera pans past gorgeous artwork of a castle in the town it overlooks before arriving at Cinderella's home and moving into the image as the narrator explains her father's remarrying to Lady Tremaine and subsequent passing. The story jumps ahead to a point where Cinderella is used to her terrible routine, but she remains bright and jokes with the birds and mice and it is through this vibrancy of her character, conveyed through incredible voice and animation performance, that the audience supports her and her dream that she sings about. Her dream is visually apparent by how she gazes out of her window at a romantic sunrise hitting the castle in the distance. Freedom. The most significant development on display is the stunning visual design. Again, this is largely owed to Mary Blair as she creates some of her absolute best work in the concept art for this film, much of which feels directly in motion or worked in the backgrounds throughout the picture, peeking at the emotional climax when Cinderella dances with the prince. The human characters in the film are given immense personality even though some are based on live-action references of actors, but a considerable amount of the film is spent on action from animals in Cinderella's house and here the film shines as well. Like the dwarfs before them, the mice are great side characters who are funny and keep the plot moving forward. Unlike the dwarfs, however, the visuals feel closer to the style of the humans they share the screen with, which is a considerable benefit to how much they drive the plot of the film. The film depicts a single day of Cinderella's life, running errands, fulfilling her stepfamily's demands, and saving a new mouse from the vicious antics of the cat Lucifer. It cuts then to the castle across town where the king whines to his grand duke about how his son is uninterested in marrying, pushing aside several textbooks of philosophy to make the bookends figures slide together and kiss, perfectly representing the depth this fairy tale intends to depict. His plan is to throw a ball that night and invite every woman from the village. The character designs of these two men deviate from the hyper rigidity, as they do not have live-action references and align more to cartoon physics. This comedic sensibility to human characters creates a larger range of possibility for the films visually and comedically, especially when they do not appear dissimilar from characters with live-action reference. This greater visual synergy becomes a new tenet of how classic Disney films look compared to the Formalist era, and in the process, these side characters never feel out of place. Cinderella's stepfamily is seen terribly performing music to further repel the audience, while downstairs Cinderella scrubs the floors and sings the same song in a more pleasant rendition. This sequence is breathtaking. Not only is her singing incredible, but in an evolution of similar sequences in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Dumbo, the bubbles from her work float up to reflect her image and echo her song, creating stellar harmonies and gorgeous visuals. After this song, she answers the door to receive a letter regarding the ball later in the evening and takes it to her stepfamily upstairs. When they discuss the ball, Cinderella requests to join as well, but Lady Tremaine says only if she can complete every chore and make a suitable dress, knowing full well she will keep her too busy to do so. The mice decide to help complete the dress for her, showcasing more animation of characters visibly thinking and processing information in a way the audience can easily read. Jacques and Gus, the two main mice, fight Lucifer for various pieces of the dress they intend to make, and the whole group sings another lovely song while making the dress. The audience sees their success before Cinderella heads up to her room accepting defeat, and can relish in her surprise and excitement to see she can attend the ball after all. This emotional high point pays off in the crushing defeat that follows, as Lady Tremaine is still in control. Seeing Cinderella met her unachievable demands, she points out that pieces of the dress were taken from around the house, and this prompts the stepsisters to tear it apart, the background becoming flat and stark colors to further dramatize how intense the assault is. Her stepfamily heads off victorious, leaving Cinderella at her lowest point yet, and years of pent-up rage and sadness burst out as she runs behind the house in a sweeping tracking shot with striking motion and gorgeous background work, to fully depict her emotional distress. Her complete lack of faith is solidified when she rejects her friend's support, stopping to kneel at a bench and sob. While asking why these things happen, her fairy godmother materializes, placing Cinderella's head no longer down on the bench, but crying into her lap. The Fairy Godmother sequence set to the bouncy bippity boppity boo is a perfect shot of lighthearted comedy after the previous scene's drama, made further effective by the action being rooted in setting things right for Cinderella. The Fairy Godmother's every move expresses her personality, and she can be maximalist in her quirks without feeling grating due to how briefly she is on screen. She draws a line in the sky to summon a wand, an incredibly effective but simple trick animation allows, and the sparkling lights that follow the wand's movement are gorgeous as well. She transforms a pumpkin into a carriage and her animal friends into her entourage, allowing for fun reversals of expectations when the small horse becomes a coachman and the mice larger horses, all while Cinderella chides her to fix her dress, showing that she has already regained herself through this sequence. She is given a spectacular dress and glass slippers alongside a single rule, as this all goes back to normal at midnight, which is more than enough time for her to simply get a night away from what she has been trapped in. The castle is one of the highest points visually, as well as the place where the film aligns the most to Mary Blair's concept art. The castle is massive, simplistic, and evocative with pastel blues softened by light with hints of pink shining from the windows and doors, reflecting Cinderella's dresses for a synchronistic and pleasing palette. The interior is similarly striking, and the scale of crowds is accomplished by having them drawn into the matte backgrounds and simulating activity with deft camera movements. Cinderella's design is also a distinct silhouette that is simple and graceful. This is where the prince is introduced and characterized by how little women or marriage interest him, until he is immediately drawn to Cinderella when spotted across a crowd. Like Snow White, Cinderella's problems are solved by marrying a prince with little to no development but this is again a symptom of the fairy tale mode that the audience either is or is not able to buy into. Cinderella, nor any film in the Disney canon, is above criticism, certainly regarding how frequently a prince saves the day, but like the simplified fairy tale narrative of Snow White, the prince in this film represents her dream more symbolically than literally. He is the means by which she is whisked away from her current conditions. When comparing these two films, I think Cinderella has a much stronger depiction of the connection the two have, in that their dance is more of a ballet piece without concrete dialogue or characters singing their thoughts. While Snow White and her prince singing to each other before they run away from the scene, the animation movement and art design of Cinderella is more affecting as the two dance to a song about love, allowing the audience to project onto the gorgeous sequence and fill in what gaps would qualify their own lightning bolt love at first sight. Within the scope of these essays, I am reading these fairy tale stories where they are, and personally I find the sequence to be beautiful, especially with small details that are peppered in to further characterize the story beats. The only thing known about the prince is that he has never met a woman that gave him this reaction, making this attraction significant, and Cinderella runs off at midnight saying she has not even met the prince, making it clear how caught up she was in the emotion, unaware of his status, and solidifying the genuine connection for both him and the audience. As Cinderella makes her escape, she loses a glass slipper on the steps and runs off in her carriage, and the effects of the spells begin to wear off on the ride home. As she recounts what a wonderful time she had on the side of the road, she realizes her one glass slipper did not disappear, thanking her fairy godmother for this memento. The film then moves to the king learning that his son did finally find a woman he wants to marry, and when going to knight his grand duke with a sword, he learns she has completely vanished, and begins swinging at him in frustration in a high-octane comedy sequence. Like the action surrounding the mice, these beats are still moving the plot forward, as the duke is tasked with finding the girl who fits the glass slipper. The next day is normal for Cinderella until she learns about the prince's search the same time as her sisters, resulting in pure bliss, signaling to her stepmother that something has happened. She traps Cinderella in her attic room, and the mice work to steal the key and free her against the efforts of Lucifer and the ticking clock of the Grand Duke trying to shoe on her stepsisters. The action plays well with this suspense and eventually her animal's friends do free her and she catches the grand duke at the last possible second, but Lady Tremaine trips him, shattering the glass slipper. This beat briefly feels like a dramatic defeat before Cinderella reveals she has the other one and the movie concludes in a happy ending with her escape from this oppressive situation into her true love. Like several pivotal films from the studio, it is hard to imagine what happens to Disney if the film was not a success, but Cinderella was the greatest box office hit since Snow White. It is on the back of this success that they thrive in the 1950s, a remarkable decade both commercially and creatively, largely led by the same directors. And between this and Snow White, the groundwork of what Disney princesses are continues to be established. After a near decade of settling for smaller projects to save costs, the studio's return to narrative form is triumphant and successful, and made stronger for the time spent honing the craft on projects with smaller creative stakes. After this, they push even further. Next up, Alice in Wonderland, 1951. Please go to ghostofjo.com to see all these essays. You can also find a link to this one directly in the show notes of this upload. And there you will find in-text citations and works cited. And share it with anyone who you think cares a lot about Disney animation. You can also find myself on Twitter at ghostofjo, ghostofjo. The music used in this audio version is from The Skeleton Dance, a Disney Silly Symphony short. Thank you for listening and reading.